Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Yeah, there's there's no question to know. David Lean. And you were the uh, head chapter leader of Colorado VHA? Clay Hayes. Uh, well, I got stalked by a mountain lion, uh, made a fishing pole out of a lodgepole pine. Falconry and bird dogs, can they coexist? Oh man, and do they. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. You made a point when you get up in those high basins and the thunderstorms come rolling in. That's how I got into trail running. Some people are just wired that way. And you are the uh, head chapter leader of Colorado BHA? I am uh, currently the co-chair of the Colorado BHA chapter. Uh, okay. I've been on the Colorado BHA chapter leadership team Boy, going back to 2006, I think, is when I first started out uh, with the Colorado chapter. So uh, I've been at it a long time and also been part of the Minnesota BHA chapter. I'm not currently, and also served on the the uh, BHA North American board. Okay. So let's, let's um, back up a little bit. There was a time that the rec world and hunting world were very divided. Um, When we started uh, Seek Outside, we didn't really envision ourselves being one way or the other. We were making hunting gear that worked well for rec. We were trying to bridge the gap. We had people that said, you shouldn't do that. You should just make some camo shit. That's what people said. Make a bunch of money and screw the rec people, you know, and, and in all fairness, you know, 65% of our market is, is hunters still, you know, when we send out surveys, but you've been a guy who's bridged that gap. Like you've done a lot of mountaineering, um, and hunting very involved in BHA. You know, you, you lived that gap and you were a very early person involved with BHA as well. So, we can kind of bridge all of this. I mean, like, you've done all the Colorado 14ers, most of the seven summits. You've been on Everest. Um, tell, you, give us a little bit of history of David Leanne. And you have a book, even. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I grew up in northern Minnesota, outdoors-oriented, <clears throat> small-town culture and, and uh, canoeing, camping, hunting, uh, all of the above, and um, when I moved to Colorado some 22 years ago, give or take now, uh, because I was a, an outdoors person, if you start hiking anywhere in Colorado, eventually you're going to run into a mountain. So <laughs> I, I decided, hopefully, I decided what's going to be the best way for me to experience Colorado and I thought well it's these 14ers these 14,000 foot peaks that sounds kind of interesting the first one I I hiked in Rocky Mountain National Park Long's Peak probably not the first 14er you want to hike no it's not necessarily dangerous from a technical sense but it's dangerous from um, the length of time you're above tree line and the exposure overall, it's uh, 
about a 5,000 foot elevation gain from the trailhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a 15 mile round trip, give or take, on the standard keyhole route. And that hike, my first 14er in 1999, I think it was August, is I, you know, I probably started at two or three in the morning, got up to the keyhole, a, a, a kind of a key place on the trail, and I see a group of people huddled together, and they're looking down the mountain. And one of their friends had just gotten blown off the side of the mountain. Wow. And you could see his body down there laying on a ledge. That's real. Yeah. It gets real, real fast. Had you done any mountaineering before that, or was this kind of like the first mountain that My, you climbed? That was the first true sort of mountain hike slash scramble, I'll call it. Not quite climbing, but some something akin to that in different places so yeah that was my first time but having spent a lifetime growing up at being exposed to outdoors experiences you, you have the innate common sense to be prepared in terms of even even this high higher elevation mountaineer well, i had the right gear the right mindset i wasn't it, it wasn't so windy that you had to turn around necessarily but it was dangerous if you were exposed and got off balance yeah. my, my first 14er was sniffles which isn't really a piece of cake either. right that's that's um, a, that's not a for a great force first 14er no either, no yeah. it isn't i mean you should you should walk up handies stroll up handies or stroll up evans yeah, albert or, 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 or whatever yeah. or, or something like that instead of going in i mean i know i know one lady i used to do some peaks with and her first peak trip was in the Wemenooch doing Vestal and Arrow. You know, she hadn't even climbed or anything before, and probably the first mountain I attempted in Colorado with any seriousness was Storm King in the Wemenooch. It was a really high, remote 13er, kind of like, how the hell did I get myself into this? Right, you right. Know? So you started doing 14ers. Yep, I, I, I was hooked, even though I saw my first, you know, dead person out in... in the backcountry, you know, and I watched yeah. the helicopter drop down a, a litter and haul his body off the mountain. But at the same time, I was exhilarated because it was such a, you know, just a jaw-dropping experience. That mountain has such a big mountain, bigger feel for a mountain than, than what it is. It's a 14er, but you get uh, sort of an epic exposure the the views and things like that that you have on on that on a mountain like that and i decided i was going to do them all over the next four years i think i was gonna my goal was to hike 44 14ers in four years and i ended up doing them all you know all 54 or five or nine whoever classic doing over, the count classic overachiever yeah goal very goal oriented yeah what, right? was your, what was your favorite one of the bunch i've done i've done long Long's Peak, three times, three or four times. Oh yeah. So that that might be one of my favorites, but probably from a a true unique experience that you can't get anywhere else is taking the train out of Durango up to Needleton and then hiking in oh, to yeah. those three fourteeners out oh, yeah. there. Windham Mayolas. Yes, yes. That's, sunlight. That's like you know combine that train experience with. Uh, with uh, then hiking back into those in the Womanoosh wilderness. Yeah. That's a pretty memorable. And I did each, I only did one on each trip, so I had to do three different trips. Uh, that's that's actually some that I want to do. And full disclosure, I've done 28 or 30, something like that. Yeah, I've done yeah. some of them. 
I think I've done snuffles 14, 15 times, something like yeah. that. Yeah. For a while, I was always taking people up, and I used to be on the rescue team. We did a ton of rescues on snuffles. And that, yeah. that kind of tired me of snuffles um, because you start, my memories start to not be so positive. They start to be a little more of the rescues and the accidents and stuff. So you went on your 14ers, you got all, all of them. And um, so when I was doing the 14ers, I wasn't, I wasn't hunting during those years. I had stopped hunting. I had, I'm not sure how or why, but I completely focused on 14ers. And then towards the end of that 14er uh, journey, I met people that, well, hey, we're going to Mount Rainier. I was like, well, I've never, you know, done glacier travel or glacier rescue techniques. And they're like, oh, no, we'll, we'll bring you up there and we'll, we'll rappel down into glaciers. We'll show you how to set up a Z-pulley and, and all that. <clears throat> so we went and did Rainier with some people from the Colorado Mountain Club and, and had a great time. And then they're like, well, we're going to Africa next to go up Kilimanjaro. And I was like, oh. I'll do that, and that's just a high-altitude hike. It's not technical, although the summit's glaciated. Um, and then Aconcagua in Argentina, which is a, a little bit more to chew on, 22,000-plus feet. That's a, 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 a potentially dangerous experience just from an altitude perspective. So it kind of went on and on, and then I was like, well, I've done Colorado's 14ers. I'm, I'm kind of doing the highest points on each continent, I should do the highest point in each state too, you know, another good way to get around <laughs> and see the country. So I so, sort of simultaneously was doing, while I was kind of knocking off the seven summits, I was starting on the on the 50 state high points too. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, what ended up being your favorites out of those? Well, Florida. of course, Mount McKinley in Alaska is a state high point. Yeah. So that, that's a pretty epic one. Yeah. You know, if you're going to do the 50 state high points, you got you got to knock off McKinley. And uh, that uh, that's something to chew on. That was probably the hardest experience, physical, mental, psychological experience I've ever had on a mountain, even more so than Mount Everest, even. Oh, really? Yeah. Just because on Everest, you're with an expedition that, a commercial expedition essentially and you've paid them to to guide you up the mountain but they have teams of sherpas uh teams of cooks they do all the cooking they carry all the heavy gear up the mountain set up the tents on mount mckinley it's you and your team you know two guides and four was it six clients six six clients and two guides and you are self-contained you have all your food all your fuel all your tents, you set everything up, you take everything down collectively, you do all your own cooking. So you start out with a 60 pound pack and a 40 pound sled and you trudge your way up that mountain and that was physically just exhausting every time you moved. That takes about three weeks, doesn't it, usually? You plan for three, yeah. yeah. We had perfect weather. We did it, I think, 15 days in the round trip. Oh, yeah. So we had no downtime due to weather. Oh, that's awesome, having, yeah. having the perfect weather. Yeah. Oh, it, it certainly is probably somewhat rare. Maybe maybe more common these days with just... If <laughs> the weather patterns. Weather patterns, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was, that, that was certainly is, is memorable 
is any mountain I've I've climbed or attempted. Yeah. yeah. You do that in spring. What what's the we good did time it to do that in the summertime? Summertime. Mount McKinley. Yeah. Okay. You don't need headlamps. That's kind of cool. Uh, I know that <laughs> was light out. My very first seven. My very first trip to Alaska in the Brooks Range. The the most worthless thing I took was a headlamp. Yes. You yeah. know, I was like, I don't need no headlamp. It's yeah. just you. It's it always sticks in my brain because it's you always need a headlamp. It, yeah. You know, yeah. But not up that high, you know, in in latitude. Right. It, yeah. During the summer. So, yeah, yeah. You can just get by without a headlamp. No and, headlamps, and, and it just and, and it's also kind of weird, or at least it has been for me, because I find that, you know, people worry about their circadian rhythms or whatever, and that yeah, yeah. you just. You just start to do things when they make sense. Yep. You don't really. You're not. You're not um, tied to time-based responsibilities, really. And so, if you want to hike and it makes sense at 11 p.m., you hike. Yep. And if you want to sleep in the middle of the day, you sleep. Yeah, I think we uh, we got back from the summit of McKinley at about 11 o'clock at night. I think it was like an eight-hour round trip. But it was sort of irrelevant what time it was, you know, yeah. other than if there's weather patterns associated with the time of day and there just weren't that nothing going on like that at that time. You but also don't get a lot of the visual cues. Like I told a friend of mine, like um, a few years ago when we were on a fishing trip up there, to be aware when you're drinking because mm-hmm. it's going to get away from you. Yeah. You know, because like unlike, say, drinking here, and you're like, oh, it's getting kind of dark, that's maybe your cues that you should start to wind down a little bit um there you can buy a 24 pack and just start drinking and at 11 it's no different than it was at seven end up at six o'clock in the morning you're like oh wow didn't even go to sleep still daytime i'm good to go (laughs) yeah um interesting when i did vincent massif in antarctica of course you go during our winter in january and it's light out 24-7 down there. So yeah. No yeah. headlamps either, you know. So completely sleep patterns completely went haywire. After we got off the mountain, and you need a, a, a very specific calm weather pattern for them to fly in and pick you up from this place called Patriot Hills. This big Russian, Cold War era Russian transport plane lands right on the ice. and uh, But they need a, a perfect weather situation. And so we were just hanging out in camp, Patriot Hills, the base camp, not our high camp, for five days. And, you know, I'd be, I would get up at like one or two in the afternoon. You just, your whole sleep pattern just started shifting to whatever. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It just becomes really random. Very random. Yeah. Because yeah. you, know? you have no need necessarily to get up or not be up or not in your tent or out of your tent or it was really. Yeah, unusual. you're just kind of like that. Uh, the fishing's good about midnight. Yeah. Let's go fish at midnight or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's a weird thing. Very weird. Know. Very unusual. So you yeah. did six of the seven summits. I mean, now, do you still go out and peak bag? Did you get into 13ers, 12ers, anything like that? or? And just real just quick for the, the people that don't know, what could you explain the six of the seven summits or, or the seven summits, I guess? Yeah. So Which seven, ones are those? Seven summits, the highest point on each continent. Okay. Yeah, so, um, you know, Vincent Massif in Antarctica, Aconcagua in, in South America, um, Mount McKinley in Alaska, um, Kilimanjaro in Africa, uh, what's the Russian 
forgetting the the East, uh, European peak. It's uh, in Russia, yeah. Elbrus, yeah, in Russia, down in the Caucasus, uh, at Mount Everest, Asia, and I'm, fit, I'm forgetting one. I think there's I think there's one in uh, Australia. Oh, Australia, yeah, 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 I did I did that one too. It's just a, it's just a, <laughs> it's just a, a like a day hike. Yeah. So Kosciuszko, it's called. Yeah. Yeah, Mountain, yeah, 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 mountaineering got you to see a lot of the world. Yeah, and that was the point, really. It, the point wasn't the mountaineering. It was having a goal that forces you to get out and see the world or the country or Colorado for the 14ers. I thought this is going to be the best way for me to get into the backcountry, hike all these 14ers. You know, I don't know, 30 plus of them are in wilderness areas. And I just thought this is, you know, this is going to, I'm an outdoors guy, so I want to see the best of the outdoors. And that right. was, and seeing, the country or the world having those goals is something that has always driven me to to just get off the couch no well no were some of them slogs i mean for me personally i would be like going to the midwest trying to do high points i'd be like you know i got 35 of the high points that's good you know yeah. like i didn't really go do the front range peaks you mm -hmm. know i did i've done most of sawatch um a pretty good chunk of the san juan and stuff but you know, the front range ones just never really appealed to me that much. I was like, why should I drive to the front range to do a 14er that I don't find necessarily super appealing when I can do a really good quality 13er right. around here? You know, I can go yeah. to Golden Horn or Vermilion or something like that. Yeah. I certainly had thoughts of, like, doing the top 100 peaks, you know, then so you transition into the 13ers from 14ers. And I just, you know, was started spreading out my destinations worldwide so i kind of pulled back from from like transitioning into hiking 13ers or, or whatever oh, yeah. but i had a really so my first 14er was like a really eye-opening experience and my one of my last ones little bear peak have you yeah. done that one i have not done little bear. i haven't done i've only done one or two in the sangres yeah. i haven't spent much time i mean i live in the san juans and yeah. i can't i i never purposefully tried to do all the 14ers, yeah. but I, I ended up doing a chunk of them because I used to meet my brother in the Sawatch because he lived in Denver, and yeah. we'd spend the weekend doing some peaks or whatever. But then at some point, I just said, you know what? I like these peaks best. Why don't I just do these? I don't care if it's 13. You know, I think Golden Horn has a nicer view and feel or Vermilion than a lot of the 14ers do. You yeah. Know? I um, my preference in terms of where I like to spend my time is the San Juans. You know, you got the most wilderness. Yeah. In numbers of peaks, I th collectively, I'm sure it's you know in the San Juans. That's I think the most 14ers. You know, the most 13ers by long shot. Um, but I just want to tell you a quick story about Little Bear Peak. So it took me like three attempts to find mm -hmm. to get up, and I wasn't using. I was using an old route that you can't use anymore because it goes through private land on the south south yeah. end um so i was like took me two times just to kind of figure out the route below tree line and then finally see where i had to go but when i did do the peak you know i obviously even from the very first peak i know you want to start early so that you're you know by sun up you're already you know near oh, yeah. getting close to the summit hopefully yeah. because like any big mountain you don't want to be on the summit when an afternoon storm rolls in and Little Bear Peak, it was a, I was summited at 9 in the morning, was back at camp at 11, just as 
a ferocious thunderstorm socked in that peak and I was walking out of there with you know my pack and everything and I was just instinctively ducking because the thunder was so loud when it was cracking on that up there in that basin a couple days later I'm reading the paper about some guy and his dad that got trapped on Little Bear Peak in a storm and I was like oh hold on that was the day I was up there they didn't summit until like noon I think you know they completely did it they should have turned around and the dad slipped and fell and died you know Wow. Yeah, you know, um, you made a point. When you get up in those high basins and the thunderstorms come rolling in, that's how I got into trail running. Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably how it was invented, too. Running away from thunderstorms. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, holy shit, I'm getting my ass out of here. <laughs> you know, holy crap. You know, so, yeah. And then next thing I know, running from thunderstorms, really, um, all of a sudden I'm a trail runner. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. Uh, so those were that Long's Peak and Little Bear Peak were sort of the bookends to my, my Colorado 14er experiences. Both, yeah. you know, very... Uh, you know, eye-opening and, and sobering and, and remind you, informing you how what a serious, dangerous outdoor activity that can be, especially if you don't use the common sense that that's, we should all be using. That's yeah. kind of the rescue team stuff. I mean, it was almost, um, I feel guilty I'm not on the rescue team anymore. I wasn't that good of a rescue team member anyway. I was distracted with um, building a business and things like that. Yeah. Um, but you know, they don't call you out for good things that happen in the woods. Yeah. Like come out and celebrate so-and-so that, uh, summited their 54th peak. You know, they call you out for falls, rocks, medical emergencies, um, lost, um, all those things. And it seems to, at least for me, it just kind of weighed on me. And I really have a lot of respect for the paramedics and the people like that, that really do that every day. So now on the 14ers and on the mountains, you know, the movie Forrest Gump, he's running, he's just running, he's running, he's running. I just felt like running. Yeah, and then one day he just feels like not running, you know? Nope. Were you like that with mountains or did you just trickle out or? I, um, I hiked my last real mountain, Mount Shasta down in California in 2012. And after that, I just, uh, you know, I guess I didn't didn't have. I guess I decided I'd done enough. You know, there's uh, there kind are kind of the Forrest Gump thing. Yeah. Like, uh, there are a lot of ways to see and experience the world, and mountaineering is a, a great way to do that. But I don't always want to keep doing the same things either. So, I I think that was part of the thought process. You know, I'll transition out of it, and you know, my wife and I have rafted a lot of the the greater four corners area rivers guided trips that's one of the coolest ways to experience some of the best parts of this country too on trips down the green river you know through dinosaur national monument or or on the colorado through canyon lands or the yampa through dinosaur you know so that's you know there's so many ways to see the world or car camping for or doing whatever so i'm kind of just looking for life experiences you know using space and time for maximum view and you get great <laughs> views from the tops of mountains you know? yeah so yeah but that's but, one way to do it but know? a lot of times the growth and everything is when you're climbing the mountain yeah. you know once yeah. you get up there it's just a fight to stay up there yeah. um 
So now you've been very involved in BHA early. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're probably, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, you're one of the better friends of a recluse that was instrumental in starting the starting BHA. Yeah. Um, give us some of that and how you transitioned into more of David Alien, the hunter, conservationist um, person. Yeah. Um, first thing I'll, I just want to touch on is hiking 14ers is a great way to learn how to get in shape for elk hunting. It yeah. is. It is. It <laughs> because is. elk hunting is just mountaineering with a gun. That's what I call it. You know? Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, yeah. So I, when I moved to Colorado in 1999, I didn't hunt for those first four, five, six years, and I'd kind of uh, groaned a little disillusioned with some of the sportsmen's groups out there. But you had hunted in Minnesota. Oh, yeah, my whole life okay. from a kid, from, you know, starting with a wrist rocket to BB guns and, and uh, yeah, deer hunting and grouse hunting and, and uh, ducks and geese and going to the Dakotas to go pheasant hunting and, and all that good stuff. So, okay. Okay. Way, always into it, and for some reason when I moved to Colorado, I didn't immediately transition into hunting. I transitioned into 14ers and things, but after I'd kind of spent, you know, 2000, I'll go go to right to 2004, I get a, a letter from Mike Beagle, who started BHA, the former U.S. Army field artillery officer, Mike Beagle from Oregon, and he had seen a letter I wrote. Uh, like a letter to the editor but it was in a in a a newsletter put out by Rep Republicans for Environmental Protection Rep America at the time it was called so um encouraging asking the the George Bush for his second his second uh, presidential term and it started in 2004 to hey letting them know that we were a group of of folks that were interested in conservation and and we were hunters and Republicans and and uh, anyway, so that letter I wrote to President Bush, not that he ever saw it, but it was in the Rep America newsletter. Mike saw it, and I said, I'm a former Air Force officer, I'm a hunter, I'm a climber, all of that. And Mike was like, oh, this looks like a guy we should try to get involved with BHA, which he had, he and the group of seven, seven hunters, anglers, men and women, standing around a fire in southern Oregon and uh in 2004 started in march of that year um so i get this letter i think it was early 2005 from mike and they had a website and i went online and i was like everything i read everything i saw that they wanted to stand for and fight for was sort of collectively everything that i believed in in terms of hunting and conservation and ethical hunting and uh immediately joined BHA and once I got on the roster David Peterson had all, was a, a, a member too and had been instrumental in encouraging Mike to start BHA. Uh, he got a hold of me and eventually we met. David was on the roadless review task force, roadless areas review task force that the governor at the time had set up the legislature and they were going around the state collecting comments from people from all the different parts of the state about our roadless areas in Colorado and what we should do to protect them or not. And David was on that panel down in Pueblo, and I went down there to uh, 
add my two cents and, you know, got up in front of the mic. And we had exchanged emails, so he knew who I was, but we'd never met. But uh, after I gave my minute or two of testimony, uh, he introduced himself and slowly but surely convinced me to uh, become a part of the, the chapter that he'd already started here in Colorado. The first state chapter for BHA. Colorado was? Yep. Nice. Awesome. 2005, he he started the chapter. So, you know, it was basically just him and however many members were starting to trickle in like me. Yeah. But he was the only chapter leader at the time. Now, you've been on the national board. You're, are you the chair of Colorado? What's your position right now? Right now, we have co-chairs. So, okay. myself and Don Holmstrom are co-chairs for the chapter. Yeah. Okay. So, what's... What kind of issues are going on in Colorado, or how does the whole chapter down to all that stuff work so people get an idea? Yeah, there's a... Or was that too what, much? What I, is I, I've been talking to people from different chapters here, and I, uh, we kind of have, a, we have... We've got a, a unique chapter structure in Colorado. I think it's probably different from all the other chapters. And the re... Well... I guess maybe I'll speak to how our chapter structure looks. During the years when I first got involved with BHA, I started out with David Peterson. Him and I were basically co-chairs. And then he encouraged me to get on the North American board, so I joined the board. And then I was also part of the Minnesota Beach Board. Simultaneously, I'm working with these three groups, and we all essentially sort of evolved into the, the standard board board of directors with multiple committees type structure um, especially the the national beach a board or the north american board uh, at, at the chapter level it was not you know we didn't have quite as many chapter leaders at the time so we didn't really have to have that formalized structure but what i started to see is that this board committees governance structure kind of lent itself to burning people out too quickly because you serve on the board and then you got to serve on maybe two one or two at least usually two sometimes more committees so you're almost kind of in now you've got sort of two or three uh roles you're playing and um i just saw a lot of good people burn out pretty quickly when they didn't have to if they if we just didn't try to overburden them with these committee assignments and as I as the Colorado chapter has grown, I wanted to try things that would have help us avoid burning out these chapter leaders. So we one we have a very large chapter leadership team, not the board, but we've got 35 of us that are chapter leaders. We've got an eight-person board, but the board is just there to support the rest of these chapter leaders that are spread out in different regional groups so there might be, they'll have regional directors and assistant regional directors but we basically push out as much responsibility as they want to have or or let them take the initiative on whatever issues they want to focus on or events that they want to hold in in their region so these days even well, even during COVID, there was quite we had quite a bit going on virtually, but now we're starting to ramp up uh, pint nights and and thing actual in-person events. But literally, there's so much going on that sometimes you know I don't 
even know something we held an event until after the fact because we've pushed out these these tasks and leadership responsibilities and let them do whatever they want we don't tell them that they've got to serve on a committee or they have to engage on this issue or put on this many events we say only do the stuff that you like to do that you want to do that is not going to burn you out in the long term. so it's basically almost like self-managed teams yeah um, that's kind of a little bit of how SO is structured with yeah. kind of a leadership team and then uh, self-managed groups, right? Or that's how we're trying to be. Yeah, that's um, what we're that's what we're doing. And so let's let's take an issue, right? And if you can explain, like, say an issue, and or we could fabricate an issue, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just say there's too many OHV users in. In the San Juans, okay, or something like that. We could talk about like mountain bike trails. Okay, lots yeah. of trails. That's yeah. an issue that's all over our radar screen. Yeah. Okay, okay. Let's talk about that. Proliferation of mountain bike trails. Yeah. Okay. So how does that issue work its way into the BHA ecosystem, and then what, and how does it get determined how it's going to be? Um, handled or what the position is yeah more often than not one of these chapter leadership team members you know with 35 of them we're, we're they've got all sorts of different interests on issues and things but usually and let's say with the mountain bike trails and Could the proliferation of trails yeah. real quick yeah. elaborate on that actual problem just like why we need to like what? What the issue is just before we get into the right. process. We of should it. get Cindy Lou here. Yeah, because that's he's the, such an avid mountain biker. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah, he I mean, left. Um, I I'll see if I can text Cindy, and yeah. he can give the mountain bikers perspective. Sure. Yeah. And you know, mountain biking is obviously a legitimate, great way to get outdoors and see see a lot of uh, incredible terrain. Um, it's also a great way to cover a lot of ground in the backcountry into areas that are habitat areas for elk, you know, calving areas. And uh, the mountain bike community is very well organized. They have financial resources. They are politically savvy. And they are just pushing trails, trails, trails everywhere. And until, well, I... I, I the other flip side of that in terms of hunters who want to ensure that trails do not immoderately impact habitat, we do not have the resources that they have. We don't, we aren't as organized, hence we aren't as effective in trying to provide a counter, counter proposals or, and or trying to just moderate these proliferation of trails proposals that are happening all over Colorado and probably the West. But um, so we're really collectively trying to just get a handle on on being able to engage at various levels, whether it's the state or federal level, where these proposals are, are continuing to pop up. And so normally it'll be, say, Craig Grother on the Central West Slope Regional Director, former career Forest Service uh, biologist. Um, he's very concerned about trails okay. and the impact on habitat. So he has been one of the one of the folks that has really uh, encouraged us to engage on that issue and helped educate us as a board and as a collective chapter leadership team. And 
as being something that we should be focusing on. If we want to do, you know, what be well, if we BHA's mission, um, you know, the voice for our wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. So if we're not protecting habitat, um, you know, we're not doing our job. Well, I imagine it's like um, those, like ATVs or OHVs a little bit. And I know one biologist I was talking to a few years ago said that in collared elk, the elk have gotten so savvy that as soon, uh, like if you take a range where it doesn't have a lot of recreation people, doesn't have a lot of people going in until hunting season, just take a set, because there's some areas that there's just not a lot of rec users that, that go in them, right? They're, they're primarily used more for hunting. If you take some of those segments, as soon as they hear ATVs, say they might come in three days before archery season or something, they'll see the collared elk start moving to yeah. private. Lots of studies like that that have, uh, and even studies that differentiate between elk reaction to ATVs, mountain bikes, horses. ATVs have the most impact. Mountain bikes aren't that far behind. And then horses are, are you know, the least, and hikers are, you know, Really, not, not a lot with horses. With horses, they're kind of like, eh, that's some. Still, still some, yeah, but um, uh, the mountain bikers it, are moving so fast, and the motorized, right? That right. Has, has seems to be more of an impact just because of the speed. And, and then they cover so much more terrain, so they're collectively going to impact that many more elk just because they're covering such a... a, a, a a big area compared to a hiker and they're usually, or a horse person. Yeah. They're usually in groups as well. Um, yeah. they, they a lot of times they aren't so. So now, how does that issue bubble up through BHA from from the local chapter? Do they tell the state chapter like we really need to get a handle on on this or drones? Drones would be a an issue that yep. I think BHA kind of helped resolve. Yeah. Right? five, six years back or yeah. when the drones really first hit the scene and there was footage of people using their drones to basically, you know, follow big game animals. Right. And uh, BHA engaged on that very early, trying to make sure as many states as that didn't already have it addressed in their statutes brought it, got it on their radar. And in many cases, you know, they could already use the statutes they had to, to make it a to clarify that it is illegal to use drones for hunting in particular is what we were looking at and uh, certainly that would be an unfair advantage in any in any book for anyone unethical right um so bha jumped on that out yeah that might have been even a decade ago now it's been it's been a while but that was one big issue that bha national uh worked with as many state chapters as we could at the time to try to get each state to, to bring that up in their individual states to their legislatures or to their DNRs, uh, wildlife departments, whatever they whatever they have, and try to make sure that it is addressed or if if it wasn't, that they could get it addressed some way. Okay, so like the, the mountain bike, uh, the central western slope says we one of the issues we need to work on yeah. is mountain bikes. And you hear that from, say, the Grand Junction one and someone else and Gunnison one. And then at the state level, you say, okay, we need to work on the mountain bike issue. What does working on it look like? I mean, you're sending some stuff to the legislature. You're trying to talk to biologists, forest service, land managers. Carl Parks and Wildlife Commission, uh, 
like the trails committee uh, in terms of funding that's going to, to potential trail development or trail trail maintenance uh, where we're the the mountain bike community will submit plans to the federal land management agencies for trail systems on federal lands so we then have have to to also comment right. uh, uh, you know national forest planning BLM lands planning um, uh, really just trying to get that issue out at least our our viewpoints on it with an equal footing with what the mountain bike community is doing and, and they're again they're they're submitting fully developed plans for trail systems to build trails to build trails yeah yeah and um so that becomes and, and that becomes we don't usually to find out about it until that plan's already been submitted to the, the the public lands agencies and and then it's you know it becomes much harder to sort of get a handle on and i'm going to imagine that on it at that time not that many mountain bikers and i hate to make this kind of gross generalization but i'm going to imagine that the amount of hunters that are mountain biker avid mountain bikers first is a small much smaller percentage than a lot of other activities right from my experience i i certainly know a few few hunters not that many that are are avid mountain bikers but certainly using a mountain bike is a great way to where you're doing it on trails that are legal and have been established it's a great way to get in the backcountry but now you've got the issue of the uh battery powered mountain right. bikes which are essentially a motorized vehicle right right yeah. you do you do and uh those and are an exponential increase in the ability of people to get into these backcountry areas and and potentially with the proliferation of trail systems uh you know it's really going to have a huge impact especially on big game like elk you know yeah now one of the things that uh, i met you probably in 2011 2012 mm -hmm. first roundy one of the things that bothers me about the perception of bha and we'll say bha isn't perfect they, mm -hmm. they are there's been right. some, there's been some times that guys have been there have been people that have written things that have maybe been a little overzealous yep um but one of the things that irritates me is that a fairly sizable or i don't want to say sizable but there's a group of people that take that and they go trump it around online everywhere as for why you shouldn't get involved with bha or something be, in, instead of taking like look 95 percent of the time it's had really good output you know there's a there's some times that maybe a chapter or two got a little too overzealous maybe stepped on some toes or something um what are your thoughts on that part of it well any organization that's actually effective and accomplishing something is going to in one way shape or form step on a toe step on a toe right. i always say if you're not pissing someone off you're probably not making a difference right there is a lot of truth to that yeah it's not always true but it it uh it makes a lot of sense and bha and certainly we've you know when bha started we didn't have necessarily the same focus that we do now because you know it, it was an evolution of what what are we going to 
truly focus on and stand for is is a is a nonprofit so hunting conservation fishing conservation organization so it's funny this is like the perfect lead-in we have Cindy Lou here joining us otherwise known as Tootie Booty uh, <laughs> but he is an avid mountain biker but he's also a hunter yeah. so we're talking about mountain bike trails being like in Colorado they're being kind of problematic for some of the big game things elk yeah. summer yeah. calving ranges and stuff like that right and mountain biking does a really great job of being unified and wanting to build as many trails as possible so i was mentioning to kevin that that's one of the major issues <clears throat> you know i think probably quite a few states have but colorado bha is trying to and uh, collectively we have to be able to work with the mountain bike community but um They've been so so well organized and funded in, in, in promoting their trail systems, and we've always been 10 steps behind. And, and we're hoping to be able to work collectively with the various groups, stakeholders, not, not just mountain bikers, but everyone, to ensure that what, what we're doing collectively out there on the landscapes can, can uh, be done with the best science possible to hopefully not uh overly impact the elk herds out there and some herds you know are just disappearing because of uh, collectively the recreation across the spectrum that's occurring in different areas you know out in uh you know vale eagle vale. area that yeah. whole herd is is really almost gone i think aspen know. i know there i don't know now but i know for years their calf recruitment was really poor we're seeing some uh, of that down in the durango area bayfield they're cutting back on tags and things like that because the recruitment is down and you know yeah i know southwest is that's kind of like the focus area right now right because they their calf recruitment has been you know less than 10 percent some years huh i think i think there's been a or a, a good focus from uh, uh cpw yeah in terms of trying trying to understand the all the dynamics that are impacting and no, no, causing it's, that. it's not just mountain bikers. Yeah. So, not, no. so, so we're not bringing Owen in so we can just throw lob tomatoes at him. No. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. no, no. Now, give us your perspective as a mountain biker, but you're also a hunter. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you want more trails. You, you'd love nothing to have a big old trail that would run around the Cimarrons. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I think... Um, let me see how to phrase it. I sorry, like my what's mic's a good about loud. That's <laughs> yeah, looking pretty good here. I'm deafening myself. Um, turn your headphones down a little bit. There we go. <laughs> Is that better? I, yeah, way better. Um, I, I definitely want more trails for everybody to go recreate on and everything. Um, I'm not quite sure what the solution to animals and that recreation is um i've done a lot of research in that aspect but as somebody who wants to do both i think there's stuff like letting mountain bikes in a wilderness I, I you know i would love the idea personally to go ride in wilderness areas but i don't think it's something that should happen you know i think you got to keep those places wild and you got to res respect those places you should really only ever be able to access them by foot and i think horse right you can take a horse into wilderness areas mm -hmm. as well um so i think that's something that really needs to be preserved in that aspect uh because hunting those wild wilderness areas is something that should be 
my kids should see, everybody should see, and, and there should always be animals in there. I know in some spots, like Ridgeway, the Ridgeway area trails, they shut down for that BLM time frame. I think it's like December to to May, yeah, to Cause, May. Because I would like to actually, I would like to ride that in like April. Exactly. I, I, yeah. <laughs> there's there's like that there's that hard hard point. Um, there's a spot in Glenwood we ride all the time that is generally dried out by that April time of the year and it's getting hot in Junction and we, we want to go ride there. But um, it also has those seasonal closures. And um, yeah, so as much as I would love to see new trails and, and in these beautiful mountain areas all over the Cimarron's would be honestly amazing because it's such a beautiful area to ride and, and hang out. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, if you have a spot for the mountain bikers to go to, and you know it's a little bit more populated i think protecting those wild spots is probably your your biggest and there there's areas that mountain bikers can go and do a lot of riding in wild like if you go the colorado trail molas to durango mountain biker can ride that whole section there 75 miles or something you know of high altitude terrain you know what they shouldn't do is get off on the little side things where there might be some pockets of elk and over into these other areas and stuff like that. Certainly, let me just bring up one point, and, you know, the seasonal closures are great too. It's just, what, I think what does happen in some of these areas, there's just no, there's no money for enforcement in terms of these agencies that have to manage that. So you can put a sign up that says closed, but, you know, it only takes a few a few folks it's to go like, back there and you it's know, like the during season, calving season, right? Yeah, it's like seasonal shed hunting closures. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's almost st- start sticking some GPSs and some antlers in the field, and you'll see you'll that see, it isn't yeah. quite closed. Yeah. What are what are some what are, like what would be a good compromise here? Um, because it just seems you know, especially in a place like Colorado, there's going to be more people moving here. People move yeah. here for the outdoor aspect of it. Like, what are some ideas that you guys have just, like, what are you guys trying to push right now? Because this does seem to be an issue that's really come up in the last couple of years. And then maybe we could get, you know, your perspective on it as well. Yeah, there. what we've seen with the, one, again, the kudos to the mountain bike community that are so well organized and funded and, and pushing what they want, which is more trails uh, and all, all over the place. I think what's lacking there is is the fact that those trail systems are have usually been proposed without taking, um, let's say, elk habitat into consideration as much as we're we're trying to to push in in our sort of counter proposals when when we have the opportunity to do that mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, there's there's different ways. What seasonal closures are are one way to try to moderate the impact. But how about rooting those trails o- away from from those key habitat areas, the, the 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 best habitat areas, and and maybe keeping them closer to populated areas, like you brought up already. Um, there's going to be more trails. There's no doubt about it because the growth across Colorado, across the the Rocky Mountain West, uh, across the country. So collectively, I guess our, our best case scenario would be that we have groups, formalized groups that sit down and everyone gets input when all these plans are getting laid out. So we can hopefully 
you know, minimize the impact on on the, re the wildlife resources while also providing those recreational needs that are going to continue to grow. There's no doubt about it. So Right now, what's your take on electric e-bikes? That's, that's, a, that's a hard one. Yeah, <laughs> um, that, that is a hard one. Yep. I, I really like that it it makes people able to get out more, right? Like, you know, you want everybody to go enjoy that mountain over there. And some people are less, are less fit or have had injuries that maybe cause to have an e-bike, right? I, I personally am not the biggest fan. I, I've ridden one. They're in, <laughs> insanely fun. Like, it's, it's a very exhilarating feeling to not have to work as hard there. Um, but I think there should be a little bit of work done. For example, in our area, I'm not sure if it is now, but there was a point where there's only certain trail systems you could ride, right? That you could ride an e-bike on. You could ride almost everything on a, on a standard mountain bike, but e-bikes were limited. And I'm not, I know there's been a big push to get more e-bikes out there, right? Where e-bikes were mostly on motocross trails, like, uh, you know, uh, off-road vehicles, ATVs, that stuff that you could go ride an e-bike on and i think that it's starting to open up a little bit more so i think in that's odd because that's i mean ha having to put the e-bike into like the motorized things is really like going to a hunting competition with a self bow and you're everyone else has a compound yeah exactly. you know and and they aren't they aren't motorized you know you're still working for it you know it's you can still get a hell of a workout from an e-bike it just makes it easier to go further and longer and go on more area you know where a, where a 12 mile ride in our area is pretty rough you know on a on a standard mountain bike without without assisting um a 26 mile 30 mile ride isn't out of the idea so maybe seeing more of the i guess you can travel more of that land you can you can get into more of those areas where it may be disturbing wildlife um, so I think certain areas should have a little bit of limitation in that aspect. I think there, I think there's a push from everybody, you know, um, all the mountain bikers want more trails. Anybody who's bought an e-bike wants to be able to ride all these trails. It's, it's, it's a tough subject to talk on in that aspect. And so. All, all the, the manufacturers want to make it easier that they want everyone to buy the latest, greatest every and, year. And use it. Exactly. And, and so you, you get to a point where the mountain bike has very little development you know uh potential and you gotta sell everyone an e-bike now to yeah. Along yeah. With. and you know even in the mountain bike community there's there's differences of opinion about yeah. the e-bike is is you you've brought up but you know further farther faster you yep. know that's what it's doing and yeah. again just uh, now and there's going to be some an hunters. another impact on, on i mean there's a there's there's the a whole there's, there's going to be hunters that want to use e-bikes oh yeah access there's, there's there's which is thing. which is why you see the e-bike folks at most of these big bha i think there's a yeah. there's a whole bike brand that i saw when we were at western hunt expo that was, yeah, that, that that's, was around that's hunting. dedicated to hunting oh, got yeah. racks on it big old tires oh, like i see i see them at, at most hunting events i'll bet yep. you're gonna see an e-bike yeah, yeah, they're almost they're almost yep. becoming like an ATV yep. or an amphibian thing. And and you know, it again it's hard because it, you're still putting effort in. You're still working. You're still working to get where you want to go. You aren't just on your ATV. You aren't pushing the throttle. There's no throttle on those things. But they're quieter the, too. They're yeah. quieter. It's probably it's, not. 
unfair advantage but it's not it's it's such a weird gray area i think that's why there's such a hard time kind of figuring out where those belong in the woods is is because it's not a motorized it's not a dirt bike it's but it's not it's not traveling by foot it's not putting every it's not a it's not an internal combustion engine but it's an electric motor um, electric motor assist it's like it's like it's like hunting archery season with a crossbow yep yep you know um right it's going from a, a trad bow to a crossbow yeah or, or, yeah, yeah yeah exactly it's it's, ha- it's having something that gives you an unfair advantage maybe depending on what it, it's, it, it's it, what it gives you an advantage to get further further farther faster, faster right yeah. um which in a lot of cases where that stuff is where you can use that you're just pushing animals further back you know? right so i mean exactly everyone people that you know whether it was back when BHA started, it was we were very focused on the OHVs, you know, and now there's other, now the e-bikes are sort of the new OHVs in terms of their potential impact on the on habitat and their ability to, to travel long distances in rough terrain, um, you know, and it's a tougher one to, to parse because it's not an internal combustion engine, it's an electric assist, is it? We BHA considers it motorized and thinks it should be categorized as a motorized vehicle. So let's, uh, we've kind of got into this quite a bit, and there's some breeze happening, so you're going to pick up some of this. Um, the, um, as far as you've seen this tremendous growth in BHA now, mm-hmm. since you've been one of the early, early, early involvement. What's the general thought? I mean, do you do you come to these events and just get a big grin on your face, or is it like we have more work to do, or or what? Um, yeah, you know, for many, obviously many many years when BHA was in its early early growth phase, um, you you kind of knew you kind of knew everybody, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. now it's the exact opposite. I can walk around and. I, I, you know, I do know, I obviously see a lot of people I do know, but I can walk around and spend an afternoon at some of these rendezvous we've had the last few years and not see someone I know during, you know, yeah, an, yeah, yeah. an hour or so. Yeah. It's, and that's very, it's very satisfying, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you get that nostalgia for when it was, uh, it is, it's probably everyone does. Maybe your nostalgia, Kevin, might be when you first started Seek Outside, right? Oh, yeah, it was really cool. We were working our tails off, but now we're, you know, you're a much larger business entity, and you, yeah, might, yeah. you might look back and think, oh, those early days were pretty fun, you know. So I look back at the early days of BHA just because we were a small, very cohesive group, but the fact that that message there has resonated the way it has, I think 48 states now, um, all but two provinces or two or three ter- provinces and territories in Canada, we've got chapters. Uh, you know, that's, uh, it's uh, everything, I guess, ultimately you hope for, but we're still, I think, only scratching the surface of of BHA's potential. Yeah, it's funny because um, I don't know, I don't really know what it is, but I feel like uh, the BH, BHA people that I know fairly well are are mostly the old timers. Yeah. But I really feel... Like, they're my tribe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and I had that feeling from the very 
back in 2005 when Mike Beagle sent me that letter introducing, asking me to join BHA saying, you know, he said, consider our organization, there are none like it. And it's still that way. There are none quite like BHA and the focus and, and the commonality I think we all feel where, you know, it's all about the resource, about habitat protection and, and, and ethical hunting practices and kind of all that together. That's what got me back back into hunting. BHA did. I'd given it up when I first moved to Colorado, mainly because I was climbing mountains in Colorado well, all over the world. But then I decided this is the organization that I I can buy into that mission, and that motivated me to return to hunting full on. And you know? it also is kind of funny because I think that it has bridged the gap between, like, it's the one organization where. The recreationalist, maybe not the mountain biking recreationalist, or the ATV rec, but the st- the a lot the, of them, the, a lot of different recreationists, you know, can really still find commonality if yeah. you're if you like big rivers to raft and pristine backcountry things. A lot of those missions align pretty well, and I don't mean to. I don't mean to demean some of the organizations that are more on the recreation side, but a lot sometimes they're when you see their social, it doesn't align very well with the hunting part and maybe the science around game management and all that stuff. It seems to sometimes be more emotion based to get someone like, oh, you have to protect Bambi from every hunter or something. And it's like, this isn't the Bambi story. Yeah. You know, it's not the the dwarves or any of that stuff, you know, or, or Snow White. It This is real life. And hunters do provide, most of these animals are here because hunters that care. Yeah, and started the, sticking up for them. The tax dollars that we pay on, on purchases of fishing and hunting equipment that goes into back to the states uh, to help them protect resources and habitat. And, uh, you know, and if uh, David Peterson, again, who started the first state chapter in, in Colorado, you read any of his books, and yeah, they're, they're, they're hunting, they're about hunting, but they're about the outdoors and protecting habitat and preserving wildlands and wildlife and that that is as much a focus as anything he writes about so Mm -hmm. um that is what bha is about and in fact you know before mike started mike beagle started bha in 2004 he met up with david peterson down in albuquerque at a republicans for environmental protection conference and david was a keynote the keynote speaker at that conference and mike was had a a rep america i think they had a chapter out in oregon so david got a hold or mike got a hold of david and said hey here's what i'm thinking about you know starting a new uh hunter angler conservation organization that's funny that you keep bringing up these republican areas that you guys met in and one of the criticisms i see online and you guys have had those green decoys and people accuse you of being a bunch of granola eating liberals in disguise yeah, and yeah. stuff. Um, pretty, pretty uh, stretching. There was a group out there, the green, the folks that started the green decoys. It was the energy, 
industry, the oil and gas industry that funded that, that group. And they've kind of faded away. But they were trying to paint us, yes, as environmentalists in camo type yeah. of thing. And it, yeah. the guy, they hired a guy to start writing these op-eds and attacking us with that messaging. And he wasn't a hunter, so he couldn't even, he couldn't even speak to hunting. And he, it was really kind of a, a disaster for him. It was almost good PR for us. Because yeah, sometimes those attacks turn into yeah, because it backfired because they they were so poorly done in terms of they didn't think it through that uh, it kind of helped us out. So I kind of liked seeing it, and then we would write responses and just tear them up. Yeah, you know? now you do a lot of op eds. You also written a book. Yeah, it's a couple, several books actually over the years. Not self published, not bestsellers, not David Peterson writing. Never, you know, there's. People like David Peter, I call my writing utilitarian. It's not pretty, but it just gets the job done, you know. So <laughs> yeah. It's really collections of most of those books I've written are collections of the op-eds and the letters to editors and some magazine articles that I've written, you know, about yeah. hunting and, and climbing in some instances. Yeah, so uh, more of a way for me to just kind of keep track of keep track of some of the stuff I've done during my life. So awesome! So people that want to uh, they want to learn more about David Lee Inn, where can they learn more? I mean, you're not it's not like your Clay Hayes, and I mean I'm, yeah. I don't mean that in a de- uh, demeaning way. I yeah, mean, believe me, it, yeah, it, I, I I hear you, Clay. No, not a Clay Hayes, and um, you know I uh, I'm more of a even in BHA, I've always been more of a behind-the-scenes guy, you know, versus yeah. versus a guy on the the face and and voice of of BHA, like a Lantani, who he right. can do he can do it all. But uh, and you were you were actually difficult to pin down on the podcast. Too. Yeah, you had some right. trepidation. I wasn't uh, uh, I wasn't like uh, emailing Kevin saying, "When are we doing this podcast? When are we doing this podcast?" He just grabbed me an hour ago and said, "Dave, let's go do that podcast." I was like, "Okay, you got me." <laughs> Dave's like, "I got to get better at running." Next time, so When's my trail running days? I need to start yeah. picking up on that. Yeah. yeah. Uh oh, here comes Kevin. Yeah. I better get the hell out of here. So yeah. So maybe a, a good question would be right now. If people want to get in, involved right. in BHA. What What do you guys need the most of? You know what we. I, I always say, uh, well, I don't always say, but I've lately been trying to communicate what the chapter leadership structure that we have with, what it boils down to empowering as many BHA members as we can to do whatever they want to do to help protect wildlands and wildlife. You know, uh, if they only like holding pint night events, that's all then we will if you do a pint night for us first time we'll we'll help you the next time we'll probably let you do it yourself and then we're going to give you a title and make you part of the chapter leadership team but uh, that's all you have to do (laughs) so uh what what we want members bha members or other outdoors oriented people out there conservation oriented people that aren't bha members but might you know be listening to or hearing about things bha does is you know, in, in research BHA, look at what we're doing. All you got, man, all you got to do is Google backcountry hunters and angers, put in your state, and you're probably going to come up with a bunch of news hits or or hits on the BHA website with what they're pushing out in blogs. And there's, there's lots of content 
out there and covering what Colorado's doing, what other states are doing. But look at what we're doing, and if you're an outdoors-oriented person that has wants to contribute to conservation of wildlands and wildlife, um, we're uh, we're not just hunters and anglers. We're people that just want to make a difference in terms of right being the voice for our wild public lands waters and wildlife spend a little time recruit some people if you have your fourth pint night you end up being on the board yeah if you Fifth do something for if you do <laughs> something for us twice we're going to give you a title and make you a chapter leader so uh, that's the way it works that's why we've got 35 of us but we'll we will empower people to do whatever they want to do within the very broad bookends of, that covers bha's mission and which is really protecting wildlands and wildlife and uh, anyone that shows any inkling of initiative and or leadership like i said we're going to give you a title and, t- and tell you to keep doing it so. <laughs> awesome 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 well david thank you very much for uh, stopping by and you bet thanks for putting on this amazing event here yeah it's just getting better and better so hopefully more more folks keep looking at bha and and considering uh, helping out with what yeah, we're doing i yeah. look forward to coming every year because it's i don't know it's part of my tribe it's invigorating it's special yeah. yeah you bet so awesome thank you very much thank yeah. you thanks hey guys thanks for listening to the seek outside podcast hope you enjoyed it this week Remember, we do have an email address if you would like to leave any questions, comments, concerns. We'd love to hear that feedback. Uh, That email address is podcast at seekoutside.com. So feel free. We're always here. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great week.